Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. All right, welcome to The Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And this is our first live episode ever here at Full Tilt Brewing. It took 124 episodes for us to have a live one. This will not be the last. So we've got a lot coming up tonight, including our end-of-the-season awards, some special guests, including John Mioli, the author of Maximizing Playoff Odds, the Baltimore Orioles newsletter, and Connor Newcomb, the host of Locked On Orioles, part of Locked On Podcast Network. But first, I'm going to turn it to Bob for a quick patron shout-out. Do we have any patrons? Well, we have our patrons here. you got to shout them out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Patrick Seaman is here. Thank you for your support. Thanks for coming out. And is that it? I think that's it. Chris. Chris as well. And we're also live on the Internet on YouTube. Yes, yeah, so to our regular YouTube and Twitter audience, thank you for tuning in tonight. Hopefully you see this uh, brewery here, Full Tilt Brewing, at 5604 York Road in Baltimore and inspired to come out sometime soon. We'll be joined in a little bit by Dan, one of the co-owners of Full Tilt Brewing, to plug his operation. But first, we're going to dive in real quick and do our end-of-the-season awards. Uh, this is to recognize some of the best players in the Orioles farm system this year. And we went a little bit different with the categories. There's a typical player of the year, pitcher of the year, but then also breakout player of the year and platinum glove, which there is only one platinum glove winner. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, our player of the year, uh, the finalists were Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, Connor Norby, Colton Kalser, and the winner unanimously was Gunnar Henderson. Now, it should come as a little surprise given how good Gunnar was this year at two levels in the minor leagues, and then at the end of the season, the majors. But all three of us had him first on our ballots. So, Nick, I'm just going to start with you. Your thoughts on what Gunnar Henderson accomplished this year? I mean, I don't know if I can put into words what Gunnar Henderson accomplished this year. I think when I was coming up with my list, there were four or five different guys I think you could justify giving this award to, and I wouldn't disagree with any of them. Like Colton Kowser overcame slow starts at... Norfolk uh, and Aberdeen, and his final line was just unbelievable. Connor Norby is apparently the best power hitter in this entire farm season, which I don't think any of us uh, saw before this season started. But when I zoom out and look at more than just the stats, but like prospect status, it's Gunnar Henderson for me because Gunnar Hen- I think Gunnar Henderson, and shout out to the Bird's Eye View guys, I don't know if they're here yet, but uh, they said it first out loud, and I was thinking about this. But they kind of said, I think Gunnar Henderson might be more special than Adley Rutschman. And Adley Rutschman just put up like a 5.3 F4 season. And so that's no shot at Adley at all, but I think that's how special Gunnar Henderson can be. And so when I look at that, for me, it was a no-brainer. It's it's Gunnar Henderson. Yeah, I agree. I was listening back to our preseason predictions, and you know we were talking about when will Jordan Westward make his major league debut? When will Adley Rutschman make his major league debut? We didn't really mention Gunnar Henderson in that conversation, and 
it was a slam dunk that he would come up and they wanted to manipulate his time enough to get him rookie of the year eligibility for next year. I mean, he improved more than any player I can remember covering in our three years doing this, or coming up three years. Um, he ended last year in AA, looked like he probably spent most of the year in AA, but he, he blitzed through that competition, he went up to AAA, didn't really slow him down at all. And he put up good numbers in the major leagues as well, so he was the easy answer for me. We'll move on now to our pitcher of the year, and the finalists were Ryan Watson, Justin R. Brewster, and Noah DeNoyer. And this is the only category where we finish with the tie, Ryan Watson and Justin R. Brewster. So, Bob, I'm going to start with you. Um, just your thoughts here, because this vote worked out that we actually have a weighted system where it was one, two, three. So the first place finisher got one vote, second place finisher two, and then the third place finisher one. So on that weighted system, Bob had Arm Brewster first. Nick and I had Ryan Watson first. But because Arm Brewster finished second on Nick and I's ballots, we finished with the tie. So Bob, why did, what were your thoughts on this result? It was a three-horse race for me. I thought the three clear contenders for this were Arm Brewster, Denoyer, and Watson. I would have gone with Denoyer if he would have had more innings, but he got shut down a little bit in the middle of the year and towards the end. But I just thought Arm Brewster you know, started in Aberdeen, and he was just an poor guy in the beginning of the year. But then he earned his way up to AA, and he got even better, barely walked anybody. I don't know. I just feel like he improved his stock throughout the season more and just had a really impressive season. Ryan Watson was right there as well. I mean, he was excellent for AA all year. And then when he went up to AAA, he was pretty good as well. He was pitching less. I think he was getting closer to his innings limit. Working out of the bullpen a little bit more, but he still pitched fantastic as well. It was a, it was a tough decision. Pretty much could have thrown him up in the air and let him fall where they, where they were, but I went with Arm Bruce the first I love that we ended up with co-pitchers of the year because it was difficult for me to make my selection, but my vote came down to Watson for a lot of the same reasons that I picked Gunnar Henderson as hitter of the year, because coming into the year, I don't think any of us had Ryan Watson pegged as a prospect to watch, uh, even a pitcher to watch in the system. Uh, he was a career reliever. He was a reliever at Auburn. He was a reliever mostly last year in Delmarva at Aberdeen, and then this year he becomes one of the most, arguably the best starting pitcher at Philly before getting promoted to Norfolk. So for me, I mean, 7-5 record, 3.41 ERA, a 1.07 whip, and 100 strikeouts, and so just 21 walks and 95 innings. Like you mentioned, I think that it was the innings limit by the end of the year, so they kind of, you know, he only got a couple innings with Norfolk, but I, a couple weeks ago, I, a couple weeks ago, I think that, um, well, you guys like to get <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I think on an episode, I mentioned one of my first like bold predictions for next year is that uh, is Ryan Watson could possibly break camp with the major awards. I am putting that one out there. Um, so if that happens, then I, I said it first. But um, like Justin Arbruster, an unbelievable year as well. Just an eight percent walk rate in high A, gets promoted to double A. That walk rate dropped to six percent. The slider became a weapon. The fastball is a weapon. I love Justin Arbruster. I love that at the beginning of the season, you had national writers call him Justin Orr guy, and I think even his family started like tweeting like hashtag J-O-A-G, and I was like, 
I don't know what that means. Is that some like secret New Mexico state type, you know, hashtag or whatever? But it was. I was like, oh, just an orgy. I got it like a week ago. Uh, went right over my head. So I can't wait until Armbruster makes his debut at Camden Yards, and I'm going to be there with a hashtag J O A G uh, T-shirt because uh, he took a big step this year. So our next category is Manager and Coach of the Year. Um, there was a lot of different down-ballot votes here, um, but the nominees were Roberto Mercado, Brandon Becker, Forrest Herman, Tim Gibbons, and Josh Conway. In the end, we went with Mercado unanimously, the manager of the South Atlantic League runner-up Aberdeen Ironbirds. And Nick, you know, kind of interesting to see how different our ballots were in some respects. For instance, you had Forrest Herman, his pitching coach at Aberdeen, second. I had Brandon Becker, the hitting coach at Bowie, second. Bob had Norfolk hitting coach Tim Gibbons, second. But in the end, we all went with Mercado in that top spot. Yeah, I think when you look at Roberto Mercado and what he did, like this time last year, he was coaching high school baseball and or working at a high school, and now he was the high A manager for the Aberdeen Ironbirds. And like the baseball resume was really impressive, but I mean, I think that just tells you exactly how the organization viewed him. Uh, to put him as the manager at high A. And then the Ironbirds end up having one of the best seasons in all of minor league baseball, one game short of a high A championship. Um, you know, my other votes, Forrest Herman, before the season started, I think I mentioned that that Aberdeen rotation, that Aberdeen pitching staff, it's like had no big names other than Gene Pinto, right? So I think the more casual fans are going to look at Aberdeen and say, I'm not going to pay attention to that farm system. Who are those guys? Who is Noah DeNoyer? Who is Justin Armbruster? And then what uh, Forrest Herman did, he's also a new guy uh, to the organization, came over from Cincinnati. So what he was able to do was just fantastic. Uh, so that's why I had him uh, second. Peter Van Loon ended up coming up. Ryan Watson was with him at the beginning of the year. So like, I, I, I think, you know, um, yeah, Roberto Mercado, just what he was able to do. I think the Orioles found a legitimate coaching star in Roberto Mercado. Yeah, I mean, he was really good on the, today's broadcast, too, before I came over here. I was listening to him talk to Jim and Kevin Brown, and just very down-to-earth. You can see why players might like him. And like you said, he came from nowhere. And Aberdeen was good no matter what this year. They might have had a couple downturns, but they had a lot of turnover on the roster, and he was able to keep them all together get them to do their best. Tim Gibbons I put up there because I feel like he goes underlooked as far as the hitting development in the system. A lot of guys got to AAA like Westberg and Henderson and you know Mega had some small struggles but we're able to turn it around and I'm going to have to imagine that Tim Gibbons had a little bit to do with that. And yeah, Josh Conway, man, double A Bowie, they had a COVID outbreak in the early in the year and still able to put together a good staff. So coaching all together was really really good this year. Move on now to the breakout player of the year, which was to recognize the player who really did the most over the course of the 2022 season to raise his prospect stock for the future. And there were a lot of good options this year. Uh, Daryl Hernays, the infielder who split this season between three levels and was excellent between all three of them, Delmarva, Aberdeen, and Bowie. Davy Cruz, a young left-handed pitcher, down at Delmarva. Frederick Ben Cosme, the infielder who is hashtag legendary between three levels this season, including the FCL, low A, Delmarva, and high A, Aberdeen, and Aaron Estrada, the hitter extraordinaire down in the Dominican Summer League. In the end, Daryl Hernandez wins this vote. Um, I, and Bob, I'll start with you here. 
I think this is an easy call for the most part for us. We had a lot of breakout candidates, but I don't know that anyone raised their stock quite as much as Chardonnay's, not just because of the things he's always done well, which is play a steady shortstop, hit for average, but we saw him make big gains this year in hitting for power and a more a better overall plate approach. Yeah, I think he was a contender for breakout of the year. After last year, we talked about it. said it might take a year or two, but he did not waste any time. He went back to Del Mar to start the year and played pissed off in a good way and hit his way up to Aberdeen and did even better there to get up to Bowie before the end of the year. It's hard to hard to argue that anyone in the system other than Gunnar Henderson or Connor would be raised his stock any more than Hernandez. And I also had Frederick Ben Cosme who was kind of like third on the list when it comes to international talent that was going to hit the state side this year, and he just blew past Michael Hernandez and not Samuel Besire, but he got for him in there. And Aaron Estrada could be that guy next year, so I threw him on at the end. You, uh, yeah, Hernandez is one of, if not the most selected prospects in this system, like I, I, in my opinion. Um, he doubled his career high in home runs. He almost doubled his high in doubles. The power and extra base hits were huge for him. He had 18 extra base hits. All of last year, after hitting, he hit 277 last year, he had a ton of only 18 extra base hits, so that's a lot of steals. Uh, this year, he hit 273, but had 38 extra base hits. And he also finished second in the entire organization with 32 stolen bases, or among my members, with 32 stolen bases. Uh, only, that was second place to only Luis Valdez at 71. So maybe if Aberdeen would have had that one more game, maybe he could have caught up to 71. But uh, like, I just think with Hernandez, like, everything had to come from behind the scenes. We've heard a lot of stories about Hernandez that, for me, I think the off-the-field stuff is just as important as on-the-field stuff. We had Brad Selick on the show earlier this year, and he mentioned that, you know, if, if anyone in the system is going to fail, he doesn't want them to fail because of their makeup. And I think Hernandez has, like, the ultimate makeup and is the ultimate guy who we always hear this, you know, growth mindset for this organization. And I think Hernandez fits that. From everything we've heard, he fits that perfectly. So, yeah, I think Hernandez was a, a, a fantastic vote here. But my vote was honestly for Federer and Cosme just because before the season started, I think he was a guy who, like I mentioned on this show, is like an 18-year-old kid who ran fast and bunted, got cool bunting videos on TV or on Instagram. And uh, so, like, thanks for listening to our podcast about this guy who is this 18-year-old kid who bunts. Like, nobody wants somebody cares about bunting. But Federer and Cosme ended up showing he's a lot more than that now. So, I mean, 840, uh, 842 OPS uh, in Del Marva gets promoted to Aberdeen as a 19-year-old kid. So, this is a guy who could be a 20-year-old kid in Bowie next year. And uh, also, Davy Cruz. I don't know if you guys talked about Davy Cruz, but I'm getting, like, some almost... I hate comps. I think comps are so stupid, but, like, I get, like, almost DL Hall vibes with Davy Cruz. And I think David Cruz could be the same way. He could be, a, you know, a 19-year-old kid pitching in Aberdeen next year, which is fantastic. Yeah, I completely agree. Cruz was excellent this year. And after we had Sam Zelenek on our show just a few weeks ago, got a lot of insight into Cruz's season and get the feeling he's a guy who's going to rise even further in 2023. We'll move on to our Platinum Glove winner. And I'm just going to end any suspense here because I think it's obvious who the Platinum Glove winner is. It's Joey Ortiz, uh, the best defensive shortstop in this farm system. Maybe the best defensive shortstop in all of minor league baseball. And what he did with the bat this year now has him, as we saw on fan graphs recently in Eric Longhagen's chat, in top 100 overall prospect talk. But he has always been a great defensive shortstop. He continued to show that this year as one highlight reel catch after the other. Nick runs our Twitter account, so I'm going to let Nick 
kind of describe what Ortiz's defense looks like on a nightly basis? Um, imagine the most beautiful art you've ever seen, uh, and Joey Ortiz is better than that. Uh, like that's he is honestly probably the best defensive shortstop in all of my history. I have yet to watch anybody better than him. I hope I know Bob is a major fan of Ortiz as well, and I share the same sentiment. Like I don't care if it's, if it's with Baltimore or he gets traded into with another organization. I'm a Joey Ortiz fan for life, and I know he's going to have. A fantastic career. We had Adam Cole on a couple weeks ago, and he said, like, this is a guy who, with the bat exploded this year, he's going to be a, a very successful major leaguer for a long time, and I fully believe that. And I hope it's here somewhere in, in that Baltimore lineup. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm a Joey Ortiz fan for life, no matter which team he, he ends up on, whether it's part of a trade or if he makes camp at a spring training next year as the starting shortstop. But the thing is, he can, he's obviously an amazing shortstop, but he can do it at second base, he can do it at third base, all over the field. He's making plays, and his bat's backing it up, even though that has nothing to do with platinum glove. But uh, also have Maverick Hanley. Everyone loves pitching to him. And Colin Burns, I'm scared of your dad, so you're number three on this list. So Gunnar Henderson and Kobe Mayo also get votes in this category. And now I'm going to turn it over to Bob before we bring our first guest tonight to go over our preseason predictions. We love to make predictions on this show, but we like to hold ourselves on accountable when we screw stuff up, which I actually thought we did a little bit better than I expected with our preseason predictions, but we still screwed some stuff up. Yeah, we predicted who would graduate from our preseason top 50. Depending on what you mean by graduate, uh, Ryland Bannon and my Jones graduated because they are no longer on the team. And like me and Nick were talking about before we started, uh, we forgot Jamaya Jones was in this organization and he was a guy that we were pretty much counting on at the beginning of the year. So strange how fast things change. But Adley Rutschman, Kyle Bradish, Kyle Stowers, Taron Babra, Michael Bauman, Zach Luther, and Tyler Nevin all graduated. Uh, Nick nailed the number, and I'm going to go through all the names, but Nick had seven, I had nine, Zach had ten, so pretty good job there. Uh, we also predicted, will Adley Rushman win AL Rookie of the Year? We all said no. Zach and Nick had Julio Rodriguez. That'll probably ultimately end up being the case. Can we say no? Julio Rodriguez is not going to He's going to win Rookie of the Year, but like, can we be honest here and say like Adley Rushman is the 2022 MLB American League Rookie of the Year? Like... If you look at what this Orioles pitching staff is able to do, I don't think there's any question. Julio Rodriguez is going to win because he was in the home run derby, and he hits a lot of home runs, but Adley Rutschman is an unbelievable talent, and he should win. Hard to argue with that. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez, will he get top three in the AL Rookie of the Year? No, he's not even going to make the major league, so we can move on from that. Will Kyle Stowers go into 2023 expected to be a starting outfielder? We all said yes with varying degrees of uh, confidence, but how do we feel about that now after 22 has wrapped up? I feel pretty good about it. I think that he, if you look at how the Orioles head into this offseason, maybe Anthony Santander is in more of a first base DH role next year. I don't think Austin Hayes has solidified his spot every day in the outfield this year. So I think unless you see a free agent acquisition or two uh, between now and opening day, Stowers probably could be penciled in for a starting job somewhere. My, I want to see Kyle Stowers more. Like Austin Hayes, I feel like you can replace his production with a league minimum free agent. 
Like he was barely league average. He played in a career high games, which is good for him because the injuries have been such a bugaboo for him. But like, I want to see those glowing blonde locks at Camden Yards every day, and I want to see him try to hit that warehouse. <laughs> I want to see him try to hit that warehouse from the left side. Like it's it's frustrating that he wasn't in the lineup more this season. But like, I before the season there was a note there that I had 75% confidence. And I think that's because. A little bit of part of me was like, he's going to strike out too much to find success in the major leagues, but I, I want to see him every day in the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he's going to be counted on as an everyday guy right out of the gate next year, but I think he'll be on the team. He'll be in the mix, and then hopefully he'll earn that spot as the season goes on. Moving on to DL Hall, we were wondering what role will he have when he inevitably makes his major league debut this year? I said a three-inning reliever, maybe a tandem with Tyler Wells. Zach said an opener. Nick said a starter and <laughs> going to lead us to the 2024 World Series. So shout out to that. We wondered, will Gunnar Henderson and Colton Kowser be in the same AAA lineup at some point in 2022? Me and Zach said yes. Nick said no. And the answer was yes, but only because they were in the same lineup for one day, literally one day, August 30th. Surprise players of the year. This is interesting. I think Felix Bautista is probably the, the real winner here when things are all said and done. I went with Heston Kerstad in the minor leagues and Ramon Urias in the major leagues. I feel pretty good about that. Nick went with Michael Bauman in the major leagues. He was very confident he was going to end up being the closer on the team. He did pitch in the last day of the season, so I mean, something similar. Uh, Ryo Rangel and Creed Willems were his minor league picks. Zach had Dante Williams and Ryan Baker slash Nick Vesky. That was pretty good. What made you pick those guys, Zach? I, I thought that Baker had really good stuff, and he showed it this year, especially at the end of the season. Uh, Williams, I don't think, was fully healthy this year, but when, at his best moments, good defender, gets on base a lot. I think that next year it could be big for him. And Vespi, you know, we saw it at the end of last year in the Arizona Fall League. That fastball-slider combo works well as a left-handed pitcher. The question is going to be, can he adjust to right-handers at the major league level? But if he does that, he'll be around for a while. Yeah. How about the disappointing players of the year? Early one of us is brave enough to pick a disappointing minor leaguer. I went with Cesar Prieto. I was, I was nice about it. I just thought he would take some time to acclimate. I thought he would struggle at high Aberdeen a little bit, but he actually crushed it and got to double A pretty quickly and then slowed down there. So still, still fairly high on him. But we all liked Austin Hayes as a disappointing player of the year, and I can't say we were wrong. Um, and Zach, you had the infield outside of Ryan Mountcastle and Ramon Urias would be disappointing. Odor, Gutierrez, Owings, Mateo, I think three out of four, pretty disappointing. Yeah, Mateo was so good this year that I feel like I got this question wrong. But um, I, I want to go back to your Austin Hayes picks. You all were a little nervous about your futures at BSL after you predicted that Austin Hayes would be a disappointing player. How do you feel about that right now? I, love, I remember Austin Hayes immediately debut, and he was like the first person from his draft class to make the major leagues, which is amazing. But like I just said, I, I think you can replace his production with a low-cost free agent. And I know like the Orioles don't need to be worried about low-cost free agents right now. Like they got the payroll, but. 
I just, I'm not an Austin Hayes fan. Like, we're, we're not really, like, a hot take podcast, but, like, that's one of my hot takes, is, like, I just, I, I think he's easily replaceable. Uh, so, yeah, my other prediction was one of Billy's starting pitchers, and I don't know if Antonio Velez counts, but that was, yeah. Oh, wow. But, like, every, everyone else in Bowie, I think, succeeded. But, yeah, Austin Hayes is, is, uh, um, is kind of rough. And if I go back to my surprise player of the year, Michael Bauman, and make another bold prediction real quick, I think Michael Bauman is next year's D3 The surprise breakout guy of uh, 2023. He finished strong this year. Back to Hayes. Even Chris has to admit he's been pretty disappointing, so I'm not that scared anymore. Breakout player of the year in the minor leagues, which we were calling the Kyle Stowers Award. We all liked John Rhodes to win this, with Zach throwing out Connor Norby as well. That was a good shot. But I think the guy we talked about earlier in the show, Daryl Hernandez, probably takes that one away. And then the Gene Pinto Award or the Breakout Pitcher of the Year. Nick went with Moises Chasse. I went with Cesar Alvarez. Zach went with Rival Rangel. We all picked the wrong international pitcher. It was Davey Cruz. Chasse finished strong though, and I think that's going to be the exciting thing again next year. Is when you go back to Del Mar, you're going to see that 18, 19 year old kid repeating Del Mar, and I think that's where you see the true breakout. When you see what Noah Deloyer, Justin Armbruster, Drew Rom, when you see what these guys are able to do in the upper levels of minor leagues, it gives me a lot of faith in uh, what these younger kids can do with Del Mar again next year. Now we are getting to the major league team. Who will lead the Orioles and wins? Zach got it right, predicting Jordan Lyles. I went with Kyle Bradish, who had four wins on the year. Nick had Bruce Zimmerman, who had two wins on the year. So, congratulations, Zach. Wait, did Bruce Zimmerman lead Norfolk in wins? Because if so, I deserve more credit for that. I can't allow that. <laughs> uh, the home run leader, we all predicted Ryan Mountcastle, which seemed like an inevitability. But with the dead in ball and left field getting moved back, plus him... I don't know. He was hitting some bad luck. He hit the ball hard, but just not in the right places. He did not do it. It was Anthony Santander with, what, 33, 31? In the 30s. The Sage leader, we all picked someone else other than Jorge Lopez, who ended up being the answer. Me and Zach went with Dylan Tate, and again, Nick, on that Michael Bellman trip, he, he was all over it. All-star representatives, Zach had Cedric Mullins and John Means. I had Ryan Mountcastle and Adley Rutschman. Nick had Ryan Mountcastle and Jordan Lyles somehow, and it was, of course, only Jorge Lopez. International Breakout Player of the Year, Zach. He went with Moises Ramirez, who hit his way out of Del Marva fairly quickly and out of a job soon after that. I went with Junior Lara, who never, never got his feet off the ground in the FCL, and then Nick gets the, the winner here. You have Isaac DeLeo, who had a really good year. Frederick Ben Cosme was also mentioned. Hashtag legendary. Skip the 26-minute roster question. Yeah. Will Jordan Westward make his Major League debut? Zach was the only one that got the right answer with no. Me and Nick thought he would. How many home runs would Adley Rutschman hit? I said 22. Zach said 15. Nick said 17, but a lot of doubles. That was true. He ended up with 13. What day does Adley Rushman make his debut? We're all pretty close. Nick took May 16th. I took May 6th. Zach had May 31st. He ended up being May 21st, of course. We predicted the Orioles' final record. Nick had him with 73 wins. I had 71. Zach had 68. We all know 
that they overperformed pretty darn good at 83 wins. The one guy who watches the least amount of Major League Baseball uh, got the, was the closest. Just point that out there. We have our World Series predictions, which are still alive for some of us. Nick had Astros over Padres. It could happen. Zach had Dodgers over Rays. That could still happen. I had the White Sox over the Mets. That could not happen because the White Sox are eliminated. And, yeah, that's it. So we'll start out now with our first guest, uh, Dan from Full Tilt Brewing. Dan, come on up. Yeah. We have it on here tonight because... You've got this great tap room up here on York Road. You're a fan of the show, a fan of the Orioles. So you may also recognize Dan from the can art on Dan's Jams, available here at Full Tilt Brewing and at liquor stores around Maryland. So Dan, how are you? I'm doing awesome. Uh, I hope you guys can hear me. Uh, I apologize. I wish the sound was a little bit better. Um, I hope to have you guys out a lot, many more times, and, um, and, and we'll keep this in a, a little bit better. I think, I think it helps with people's voices that boom, and I tend to be loud. But anyway, thanks for coming out, and um, uh, honestly, I'm honored to ha- um, have these guys out. I say give these guys a hand. They did a hell of a job this year. So I, I, I've told these guys, um, I, I discovered them on Twitter, I, I want to say in the spring of 2021, I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm a huge uh, Orioles fan, but you know when your when your favorite team's going through a rebuild, it, it's obvious that you know what you're really watching is in the minor leagues. And I'm on Twitter. I'm looking for good content, and I discovered their page, and they're giving the best content, whether it be nightly uh, recaps of what's going on, um, you know, the video highlights. It was just awesome. Um, and uh, I, I've shared their stuff out, but they don't, they don't need me. They're killing it. So I appreciate you guys. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> and his shirt says Tilts, by the way. That's, that's awesome. Right. Um, a nice top shirt. But um, so, so anyway, I, I guess um, well, I'd rather you guys ask me questions, but I'll ask you a question. Let's go. Because you're all about my age. I want to say I'm 38 years old. I think that this is the best farm system that the Orioles have ever had, like hands down. Um, like they've had periods where they had, you know, Weeders and, and a, a couple other guys where they had the Tillman, Arietta, um, whom whom I forget. Yeah, but but right now, like they have like the strongest farm system they've ever had, and like you guys are putting content out about that, and it's great to see. So, you know, maybe yeah. it's more of a statement. I do think it's the best farm system the Orioles have ever had, and I think Michael Elias said today that it's the strongest, deepest top ten he's ever been a part of, and he's been with you know Houston when they were getting good too, so that's, that's saying a lot. So what do you think of this year? What do you think of this season? Did you have fun? Did they, they exceed your expectations? Well, yeah, obviously. I think I was on tankathon.com like trying to figure out how they were going to get the first pick, um, no lie, um, throughout April. And um, and then they end up pushing for a wild card berth, and and I became a believer. I thought they were going to make the playoffs, and you know, they were like this close. What where they finished five games out, yeah, roughly. So it was incredible. Um, it was a fun watch, but yeah, great year. I was say, is is Gunnar Henderson your favorite prospect, and how special do you think Gunnar Henderson is going to be? 
Gunnar Henderson is my favorite prospect. I, I don't know if you're just gauging that off of like my my retweets of what you guys do, but yeah, like Gunnar Henderson is my favorite prospect. I I will say, um, you know, all apologies. I prefer like middle infielders. Like I I think a stud shortstop is like the thing you should have. And I remember I was mad that they drafted Adley. I wanted Bobby Witt. I'll admit it. Um, I I will apologize now. I, I, I think they made the right call. Like I'm, I'm not a scout. I'm just a drunk guy. But, um, but, but I think they found someone better than Bobby Witt anyway, Gunnar Henderson. So that's why they're in charge, and I'm just here spitting hot takes. All right. Last question. This is a controversial one. What are your opinions on Brandon Hyde? Should he be the guy leading this team to the promised land? So, um, yeah, uh, I'll say yes. I, I think he should be the guy. I, I just, I, I think it's unfair that like you have this rebuild and you just throw out this poor guy just to take his lumps, and then as soon as like you get actual big league talent, you just say, okay, well now we're gonna get a, a real big league manager, which means like a retread. I think that's unfair. I think you give the guy like an actual major league baseball team, um, you know, to ma- to manage or mismanage, and then judge him off of that. It's just not fair to. Um, to throw a guy out to the wolves, and as soon as he has something, just be like, okay, thanks for trying. Um, your, your record says you suck, which, like, we all know, like, uh, a major league baseball manager can only do so much. It's just, yeah, it's, not, it's unfair. I agree. Good call. Yeah. But I just want to say thank you for hosting us, and yeah, like, I drove three hours to come up here, and I just have to say, just for the beer alone, it, it was worth the drive. This is an amazing establishment, and I'm happy to come back, and let's have many more live shows in the future. I agree. Thanks a lot, Dan. This is awesome. Well, you're welcome, and thanks a lot on uh, our end, and uh, we'll work on the acoustics a little bit better. We're used to uh, bands booming out the spot, um, so we'll, we'll figure it out. But um, thank you so much, and uh, no one came here to listen to me. You got a lot more interesting guests. I just I just have hot takes. We'll save them for later. <laughs> All right, I appreciate you guys. All right, thank you, Dan, um, coming on tonight, and uh, we'll go to our first guest now, the host of Locked On Orioles, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, Connor Newcomb. So Connor now gets to walk around the outer edge of the tables here to come up and talk to us. We talked to Connor a lot over the years. And this is the first time that we've actually seen him in person. So, Connor, nice to see you. He's tall. Yeah, I am. Uh, I've been getting a lot of that. But it's nice to meet you guys in person, finally. Uh, we've, we've crossed over uh, many times talking about, I mean, honestly, when we when I first started having you guys on the podcast, things weren't even looking this bright. It was, uh, especially having Nick on talking about the Norfolk Tide seasons. Uh, he was just trying to coax a, a watchable AAA baseball team, and now they've got four of their top eight prospects in, uh, in Norfolk, so things have, things have even changed in that time. Love it. I, I want to ask, you, you follow the Major League team a lot more closely than I have, obviously, this season. You podcast daily about it. Um, what was... I'm a sicko, yeah. What, what is your... And I, I'm going to give you credit because I remember at the beginning of the year, maybe even last year, I think... It, you were the first one that were like, hey, this Felix Batista guy uh, is striking out a lot of guys, and the walk rate is like plummeting as he's moving up the organization. And for me, I think I've said before that like, when he was, even in Booby, I'm like, yeah, he's like a 25, 26-year-old guy. He spent about five years in rookie ball. He's 24 years old in Delmarva. 
Yankee throws hard, but how many other guys in the system are 6'6 and throw 100 miles an hour and walk a ton of guys? But Felix Batista became arguably a guy who deserves like rookie of the year votes. Um, was Felix Batista your biggest surprise of the season? And if not, what, what was your biggest surprise this year at the Major League level? Yeah, I mean, just with how good he was, it's got to be him. I mean, he could have gone through this year as the Orioles' sixth inning guy. He could have had a 3.5 ERA, and we would have said, this is a pretty cool story that he spent 10 years in minor leagues, and he came up to be a, a major league producer. And all of a sudden, Jorge Lopez gets traded, and he has 15 saves down the stretch. And I think opponents hit 080 against his splitter this year, and he's throwing 103, and he can drop in a, a get-me-over slider for a strike whenever he wants. I mean, this is a different picture than we we saw for 10 years. I mean, his walk rate this year, the only time it was lower, I believe was his fourth year of rookie ball, which was 2017. That was the only year he had a lower walk rate. And every other year was astronomically higher. Now, his K rate went down a little bit, but that's because he actually had to get some guys out rather than just strikeouts and maybe get some ground outs and some fly ball outs this year. But, I mean, he was, is an incredible revelation. And, you know, you hope he can stay throwing this hard and probably help with how big he is and obviously he's a little older than some other guys but they can have him around here for for seven years and the thing with him being this good now is relievers are volatile but even if he ends up being a setup guy instead of a closer it's still working yeah they liked him enough to trade jorge lopez which i know you were not the biggest fan of that trade at the time how do you feel about those deadline trades now that the season's over. Do you like them any better than you did at the time? Do you think it could have made a difference if we had Trey and Jorge down the stretch? Do you think we would have made the playoffs? I think at the end of the day, they would not have made the playoffs. I think a lot of that has to do with how talented Toronto is, how talented Seattle is, um, and just how many players Tampa has on the 40-man that they can just call up. I think at the end of the day, like you look at Tampa, they went two and nine down the stretch. That's almost because they kind of gave up once they clinched. And Toronto was red hot in September, and the Mariners played the easiest schedule in maybe the history of baseball in the month of September. So even if this Orioles team won 86 or 87 or 88, I don't think they were getting in. Now, Kate Povich looks good. I honestly kind of like the younger guys. Rojas and Nunez better. Some insane strikeout the walk numbers. And, you know, I really think that biggest deal out of all these guys could be Seth Johnson and he finally gets pitching where it's going to take a while to see that. The Lopez trade I've cooled on a little bit. A little bit was because of how poorly he performed. Some of that had to do with probably switching cities, different role in Minnesota. He could be non-tendered out there. I was talking to some Twins people. They're a little worried that could happen. The Trey trade, I'm still not a fan of. I think he could have helped this offense which struggled mightily down the stretch. He meant so much to this team. It probably burned a bridge about bringing him back. He likes Houston. I do know that. Um, but I think Seth Johnson would be the, the, the tell of the tale in four years. So, Connor, in the offseason, you tend to break down every part of the roster with your report card series. I've done a couple of the pitcher shows with you, and I have to be honest, they haven't been a lot of fun. And, like, the kind of players are breaking down. This guy gets a D or a C minus. We're not really sure. But is it going to be any different this offseason, you feel like? I mean, well, for starters, Dean Kramer, Felix Bautista, Dylan Tate, CNL Perez, Jordan Lyles, those are all A guys, I think, right now. 
I mean, and then you go to Kyle Bradish. He's up there as well, obviously, a rough stretch kind of in the middle of the season. But I, you look at the roster, and, you know, we kind of grade these guys off of expectations. There are not a lot of guys who performed worse than expectations. If the, the guys who performed worse than expectations, I'm not going to talk about because they're off the 40-man roster at this point. And so anybody who pitched well, I mean, you had guys like Brian Baker, and yes, I know he is a controversial figure among Orioles fans, but Brian Baker threw 13 consecutive scoreless innings to end the season, and he was their fourth to fifth best reliever this year. And so all these pitchers, I mean, even, even Jordan Lyles was fantastic. I mean, Spencer Watkins pitched way better than we thought. I mean, honestly, the hitters are going to be where it's a little more negative this year, but the pitchers, all in all, I mean, that's the reason this team was over 500. I got a question because we've gotten a couple comments. Nick, you know, Nick Vespi finished AAA 28-something innings without an earned run allowed in AAA. He did have a lot of time in the major leagues. We saw him pitch earlier today, uh, getting called up as a 26th man or 27th man for today's double header. When we posted, a, I saw a lot of comments like, "He's your classic 4A guy." What do you think the future holds for Nick Vespi? Is, is, does he have a future with the Baltimore Orioles? I think it's a little telling they didn't protect him last year. I think they see him a little more expendable than some other guys. However, he's on the 40-man roster. They made the point to not call him up for a fifth and final time at the end of the year, so they didn't have to potentially option him, which they wouldn't have been able to. They would have had a DFA. So they called him up to be the 29th man, and that didn't matter. So they obviously, he goes into this offseason much better standing. It's going to be tough to get into that bullpen next year because you have a lot of holdover guys who pitched well, and then you have these Ryan Watson types, the Mike Bauman types, who you know are going to become the next crop of these starters turned relievers who get into the bullpen. Mike Elias is going to be picking up more guys on waivers, but I think they're going to keep him around. I mean, if you can throw 89 and get that many guys out at the major league and AAA level, he's got good stuff. It could be, if the Orioles really add this offseason, he could be part of that crunch. But if they don't add, you know, five, six, seven legitimate impact players, I think he's at least here in spring training. Another one, what are we going to do with him type of question. Jorge Mateo broke out this year in a pretty good way. One of the best shortstops in the game defensively. Got hot for a couple months there. Pulled off again towards the end of the season. If the Orioles are going to be competitive next year, can they go into the year? I think he has to be on the team. I mean, Mateo is going to be a finalist for the Gold Glove at shortstop in the American League. He also led the American League in stolen bases. So just for that, you have to have that player on the bench. Not only can he play short, he showed in a pinch he can play second. He has experience in the outfield if you need him to be your utility guy. And just to pinch run and play defense... He's there, and you know, if you make that big splash shortstop signing, which I think they should, and you put Gunnar Henderson third, and you know, you have whether it be you know a Norby or a Westberg or a Ramon Arias or someone at second base, Mateo on the bench is a weapon, and, and that's what a lot of guys on this team I think maybe don't possess is I don't know if Ramon Arias on the bench is a weapon. You know, I don't know if even Kyle Stowers on the bench is a huge weapon. I don't know if Austin Hayes on the bench is a weapon. Jorge Mateo off the bench is a weapon, so even if he's not the opening day starting shortstop, which he could be if they don't sign a Trey Turner or Carlos Correa, he's got to be. I mean, he's got to be on the team, and I think he stays on the team all year because it's just so valuable in the other things he can do. 
shifting gears and looking at the outfield, we just talked about this before you came on. Austin Hayes, you just alluded to, not a weapon off the bench, didn't have the best season. Kyle Stowers in the mix. Anthony Santander made it through, was not traded. Cedric Mullins looks like the starting center fielder next year. But then you have Colton Cowser right at the door of Triple A. How do you think the outfield situation shakes out um, between now and spring training and maybe in the early part of next year? Yeah, we'll say for Cowser, I don't think he's in the mix for the opening day roster. So at least they have a little bit of time. And they got a group of guys who they're going to have to make some decisions on. And it's interesting because we had the same conversation last year. And this conversation included Stowers. It included Robert Newstrom. It included Yusniel Diaz. And those, some of those guys are kind of out of this conversation. Mullins is there. I was kind of on the train of, oh, they probably trade Santander this offseason. Can you trade the guy that led your team in home runs and hit that well? Maybe not. And so Austin Hayes kind of becomes the odd man out, and he also didn't play well enough down the stretch where he is a trade piece himself, where maybe when you go get a pitcher, and maybe if it is Pablo Lopez, you can sell Austin Hayes to the Marlins as like, maybe he's not your long-term fix, but if you put him in your outfield, your lineup is going to be better. Now that's a product of the Marlins offense being putrid and their outfield being horrible, but you could sell that to at least being another piece. I still think they could sign an outfielder. Maybe not an everyday guy, but a guy who helps you more in a platoon role than maybe Hayes does. And you could maybe move on from a guy like Austin Hayes. It's unfortunate, and I can still see him being on the bench, but I mean, maybe from the, I mean, does Ryan McKenna help you from the bench more than Hayes does? Theoretically, yes. So he's kind of a nice guy. Yeah, I like Jack Peterson, something like that. Pretty Bellinger if he's not tendered, maybe. I've thrown out Joey Gallo. Some people have not been happy with that, but. I like Gallo. My last question is. Did we ever figure out who won the draft that we did before the season started? That is a great question. Um, who got Norby and Gunner, I think? Yes. But then everything else was bad. It's got to be Zach at that point. I mean, I had feelings about T-Stat. I felt good about that. But you can get those two guys on one team. Um, I, I think it's Zach. I can give it to Zach. Congratulations, Zach. <laughs> But you guys left me with all like the 18-year-old kids in the Dominican Summer League, but that's fine. Um, I got one more question because I know you are a staunch, you at least were a staunch DL Hall supporter. Uh, I'm curious, uh, over the last couple I'm of weeks, good, has yeah, your opinion I'll, changed I'll at all? And if not, what is DL Hall's role going into next season? I think he's a starter coming out of spring training. I think they haven't even they've given that role one chance and kind of out of nowhere in a weird plan where he was going right back to AAA. I think they have to give him a chance, and it's going to be interesting because presumably you're going to come in with Bradish, Kramer, and Wells, who all pitch well enough this year to be in the rotation. You're going to have Grayson Rodriguez there, and at some point you're going to get John Means back, and you would think either a free agent or a trade piece is coming in, and that's even leaving out the potential to pick up Jordan Lyles' option. Not a lot of space there. They probably start the year with a six-man rotation. Teams have been doing that a lot for like the first month of the year. That could help out. I just think you have to give him that shot in the major leagues. And if it means that Tyler Wells piggybacks off him and they each pitch you know, three or four innings in a game, maybe that happens. But you have to at least let him fail as a big league starter before you move him to the bullpen full-time. Because we've seen in the last week, he could be Josh Hader, but I want to see if he's Blake Snell first. All right, so Connor, you're on the air daily, year-round. 
So tell our listeners today where they can find yourself. Yeah, Locked On Orioles podcast, wherever you get pods. We still got a month more of daily episodes until the postseason. Then we go to three days a week. We're on YouTube as well. I will have all of you on in the offseason. I can pretty much guarantee that. Uh, and next week we start breaking down player by player, episode by episode, how they did this year and uh, what their roles look like going into 2023, which hopefully is with off for the Orioles. And I just want to throw out one more thing. If you get mad at Connor, which you shouldn't get mad at Connor, because Connor does great work at Locked On Orioles, you shouldn't be mad at him at all. He gives great insight. But if you are mad at him, don't mention us on Twitter, and don't mention Connor because we don't know what that means. We don't collect each other's fan mail, so the message is not going to get there. So just don't mention us if you're mad at Connor. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, people get mad at. Me. I, I just like Trey Mancini a lot, and I think oh, that, that ends up with a lot of people getting mad. <laughs> well, look, you know, we're, we certainly are not mad at you, so, Connor, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Thank you guys for having me. This has been great. All right, Connor Newcomb, host of Locked On Warriors, part of the Locked On Warriors Network. And we're now going to go to our next, uh, next guest. He is the author of Maximizing Playoff Odds, a Baltimore Orioles newsletter, his work has also been seen in the Baltimore Sun and the Baseball America Top 30 Prospect Handbook. Here he is, John Mioli. Has the uh, big news made it up here yet? What's that? My Instagram got hacked while I was sitting there. Unbelievable. I, I did see that. Uh, Barstool Eric. Uh, yeah. Bitcoin got you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm unfortunately not Bitcoin rich. I'm just, you know, humanity rich by being here. <laughs> Your haircut says you could be in a Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote an article for Baseball America, I think it came out today, about yeah. Joey Ortiz. That was very interesting, very good work as always. Um, what are your thoughts on the way he ended the year, and do you think he put himself in the conversation enough to have a chance to win a job at his first radio lecture? I think so. I mean, you're talking about someone who, if we had this conversation in June, you're talking about a player who wasn't having a very good season by any accounts. I know he was disappointed. I know the organization, because of what they feel about him and how they feel about him as a player, was disappointed. And when you see someone break out like he did, and there's a material change in what you know what they were doing to make it so that all of a sudden they have like an OPS that starts with a one for three months of the season, that makes it real. I'm putting together, you know, the BA top 10 right now, and that's the person I'm asking questions about and getting that kind of feedback on. Um, I, I, I saw someone, I think it might have been, um, you know, I don't know if it was Fangrass or ESPN, had him in like a top 100 prospect pick. But if you play a legitimate big league shortstop and you hit the ball the way he is, I think you're talking about a person who is truly in that conversation. So, yeah, I mean, he's going to, you would assume, get added to the roster. Uh, if he's not on the Orioles roster next year uh, and, and he doesn't get protected, he's going to be rolled five. I mean, Richie Martin got rolled five. Um, so you assume Jordan Ortiz could. So he will be in a big league camp, and I think by virtue of that, if you can do what he's done, you're, you're absolutely talking about someone who can be in that mix. So, I mean, your newsletter this year, you had fantastic articles on Ortiz, Colton Kowser, I mean, so many guys in this organization. And for me, like, my biggest takeaway after watching this all season long, reading your stuff, it was which is the most insightful, I think, of, of any minor league coverage out there. Um, my biggest takeaway was that like the Orioles have really established minor league coaching staff, player development systems, and the entire organization 
one page, one goal, one mindset. And my biggest takeaway is that this is sustainable. Everything they're doing is sustainable for the future. And you know, we're seeing some success at the major league level. I think you had the, the article about you know teaching sweepers and stuff like that with the pitchers. And then you know, Justin Arbrister, Noah Denoyer, I know Brendan Hanafi, a lot of these guys in the minor leagues, we're seeing that replicated. So for me, it just seems like they've identified what works, what doesn't, and you know, it, it's working at the starting to work at the major league level and replicating that at the minor league level and having success up and down the levels of the minor leagues. That was my biggest takeaway. I'm just curious. You know, you've got to talk to a lot of people this year, a lot of players. What are some of your biggest takeaways? You know, overarching, you know, organizational from an organizational point of view. What are some of your biggest takeaways from from this 2022 season? I think a lot of the things you said are, are correct, and I think that the way they've done it is really fascinating to me. Um, it's no secret, you know, how to be an effective pitcher in the big leagues and develop effective pitchers. There's a ton of data. You know, this is a we're going on a decade of, of this being, you know, public and knowable and doable if you want to develop pitchers this way. And, and, and hitting is a little farther behind that, but the Orioles have a, a plan they really believe. I think where they, excuse me, have found um, maybe an advantage is that they're doing all that stuff and they're having, you know, teachers, literally teachers in some cases, and people who teach in other cases execute that and, and, and help players understand that, you know. There are players in the organization, some of the players you mentioned that we talked about, who haven't fully embraced this as this has been presented to them. And the way that teachers work is that they know the answer and you know they need to get the student to to that answer, you know? The student the, the teachers say it all the time that this, you know, the teacher appears when the student needs them to. And and I think it was actually Ryan Fuller who told me that last year I was talking to him. And he's a teacher, and he's now a big league hitting coach. So I think that what they really have found an effective mix at is to be able to know what you know, what kind of pitch works in the next spot, and how to develop that pitch, or what kind of you know work needs to be done to flatten out a swing to you know cover high riding fastballs. And they know the technical skills, but they also have people in place who can teach that. And I think that's something that. That, that shouldn't go unrecognized as, the, as this season kind of comes to a close. It's very hard to do. Um, being at the affiliates at, at the times I was, you know, it's a grind. And, and, I don't, and I think that part of the reason the players were able to do what they did this year is A, because of talent. You know, they've drafted really good players, but I think they've also done a really good job of, of, of teaching and instructing and coaching those players. And, and, and that's probably the main takeaway from them. So one of the players Nick mentioned, I think, was actually the subject of one of your best articles this year, which was Noah DeNoyer. Noah DeNoyer was an undrafted free agent, and this is going back when the draft was 40 rounds, not the 20-round draft, for the five-round draft in 2020. So for our listeners, just kind of recap how the Orioles actually found DeNoyer in the first place. Yeah, so, so they sent their their Midwest scout, he was, in, he was a video scout at the time, Ryan Carlson, to the, the Northwoods League with a list of players that the analytics team had come up with who were there. Um, I think they had some kind of idea that Noah DeNoyer was like a signable player. He was draft eligible, even though it wasn't really something that, you know, it wasn't on the radar. He was a junior college pitcher who had very, you know, infrequently pitched during his season. He was going to get his 20 innings. He was going to go to Oklahoma State and have a really good time there, I assume. <laughs> and, and it's one of those scouting moments that you hear scouts talk about all the time when they're like, wait, am I seeing something that's, like, real? And then, like, also, like, why isn't anyone else here seeing this? And, you know, he was a player whose who's metrics obviously lined up with what the Orioles wanted. Um, they signed him. They gave him the opportunity. He's a different pitcher now. You know, they scrapped his two-seamer, like, the day he got into the organization. Um, he's changed his slider to a sweeper, which has helped everybody. 
he had been like tinkering with his changeup and, and made it a splitter right around the time he had signed. But you're talking about someone who now throws in the mid 90s with, with a real pitch mix. And, and as we're talking about players who you know develop and make themselves better, I think he's somebody who has absolutely done that. And I believe he pitched well today in the in, in the fall league. Another guy who's like eligible to get added to the roster and is going to be a really interesting case as, as we go through the next month or so. Yeah, what did he have? Five strikeouts over two and two thirds, giving up one run. The mayor's in a fall league in that run environment. That's pretty good. I think he's a slam dunk to get added to the to the forty man in the offseason, but we'll see. I want to get your take on the usage of guys like Taron Babra and Kyle Stowers to end the year. These are guys who, especially Stowers, we thought once Trey Mantini was traded, he was basically going to get everyday bats, and wasn't necessarily the case. But they both ended up playing more than thirty games and putting up some decent numbers. What do you make of that? Do you think the, the organization is lower on them than the public at large, or they're just easing them into things and they're still believers? I don't know that it says anything about like how they're viewed by the organization. Obviously, everything from you know from how players are promoted to how they're you know where they stand when they're on the outfield to how the lineup is made is a very collaborative process. Um, in a weird way, like I feel like something like that, especially with Stowers, when you have an Austin Hayes there who carried the team for like two like a month, six weeks, two months. You have a you know Rubenetto Odor who won probably five of these like eighty. Three games they won single-handedly. You know how many did you lose? Though? <laughs> I know there are people who will tell me how many they lost, and there's probably more of those. I, I think I think it was a situation where because it wasn't a slam dunk, you're not replacing you know somebody who's not playing well with a Gunnar Henderson. I think that because there was a little more parity in like the players and, and what they could bring versus the players that were there, that it was a little more of a balance. But you know Kyle Stowers. You know, once he kind of started playing more, he had like an eight something, eight nine something OBS since when he got in. I think that it's more of a process. I think that you know, I talked to Kyle Sowers yesterday about it and wrote about it, and I think he it was a process for him. But it's not wasted time when you are not playing in, in, in this organization. I think that him and Taryn Bobra are players who really value you know the program that they're in. You know, mixed batting practice for Ryan Fuller and Matt Corbett is not big league pitching, but you can stay sharp and you can work on the things you need to work on so that in the cases of these players, when you do get into the game, um, you're not you're not swimming, you're not overwhelmed because you're seeing those challenges every day, whether it's game or not. So it, it was unfortunate, it was kind of weird. Um, when we look back at this season, I think that, you know, there are probably people inside and outside the organization who wonder if, like, you know, if those players had played more, if this is a different day and you know, there's more baseball. I don't think it's necessarily that extreme, but I think it's definitely... I think it's one of those things we're going to think back on. It's going to be a little strange. Uh, I wanted to ask about uh, Colton Kowser, just because I know you've written about him a lot, and he's someone when he was the draft pick. Uh, I don't think a lot of people really like that pick. Uh, and even when you look at the national prospect rankings, I don't think a lot of those national lists are even big fans of him. Because he, I feel like he's got that you know, underslot stigma attached to him. But you look at what he was able to do. This is his first pro season, and he finished in AAA, and he finished on an incredible hot, hot stretch over there in AAA. Um, you know, what kind of, of player are we looking at here with Colton Kowser when, when he finally reaches the big leagues, do you think? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, as you're saying, like, you know, there's not a lot of, like, national excitement or buzz around him, you know. I feel like it was, like, yeah, probably, like, a month into the season, like, a scout I'm close with was seeing Aberdeen, and he just texted me, like, man, this guy's so boring. And he didn't mean it in a bad way. It's just, like, he's just, like, you know, he's just, you know, he runs the bases, he catches what's hit to him, you know, he'll take a walk, you know, he'll, he'll lace balls into the gap the other way, he'll pull some sometimes. 
and at that point in the season, that's what you know. That's what he was. He was not. He was still trying to find a balance of being a you know a pro hitter and and play baseball every day and figure out when to go to sleep and how to live when you have a baseball game every night. Um, so there was a lot of adjustments with his own hitting plan versus what the organization was trying to get him to do in Aberdeen. I feel like everything started to turn around. You know, come June and then July, he got promoted to Bowie and just kind of went crazy. Um, and and it's really interesting. It's going to be very interesting when you're talking about a Kowser, a Norby, a Joey Ortiz, all these guys, to think about how those second halves in Bowie are viewed. I mean, they're, it's a half a season. It's two months we're talking about, but they're like superlative. They're very, very – it's very impressive what these players did. So, so I think Kowser specifically is someone who – that is more the player he is than the guy who kind of struggled in, in Norfolk. I think there might end up being a little more swing and miss to his game than than anyone kind of expected when you're talking about like a pure hitter like he is. But but he's someone who I, I believe you know he's going to be in the big league next year in all reality. I mean he's not going to get like 600 at bats in AAA. That would be very surprising if that happens. And then you're talking about what does he want to do? Does he want to be you know a top of the order table setter and hit the ball the other way and get on base and walk, or does he want to tap into his full power like he did at Bowie and be a guy who hits for power? Um, some guys can do both. I'm not sure a lot of guys can do both. I'm not sure he can do both, but he can do a lot. And I think it's really interesting for him to have had the season he's had and have that be unclear. I mean, he is a special, like, talented hitter. He has a lot of talent in his bat. It's just a matter of what it's going to be. It's not going to be something bad. It's just a matter of, it's, it's really interesting for somebody to get to that stage and not know that. Um, talking about a guy that tapped into his full power a little bit this year, Jordan Westbrook. Um, a lot of ups and downs this year, but overall, a strong finish to the season. Ends up as minor league player of the year. Do you think that there's a role for him with the Orioles next year, or, or early in the season at least? I would assume that he will be in the mix and he will be a player who is in big league camp until like right at the end and then there's somebody who, you know, whether it's an out-of-option player that comes up with waivers or something like that and it doesn't work out, but I don't think it'll be long for him in Norfolk. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement about what he was able to do this year in the organization. I mean, he had, like the amount of like extra base hits he had in pro ball was like borderline unparalleled. You're hearing that a lot as you're talking to people in the organization. And he did that with two months where he was really not good. <laughs> um, we're talking about like four months out of a six-plus-month season where he was not terribly productive, and he still was close to the org lead in home runs and, and, and those ended up being the player of the year. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with what happens around him, you know, where Jorge Mateo fit in, where is there going to be an infielder brought in to, to kind of like, you know, put butts in the seats, as Michael Elias kind of said today in his, in his press conference. I don't think a lot of it has to do with Jordan Westberg. I think there's a lot of belief in what he can do, but but his future uh, it is an unfortunate position for him to be, and I don't know that it's in his hands. I don't know if you were able to talk with Drew Rahm at all this year or how many starts you were able to watch of his, but I, I think I mentioned off-air after we recorded last week's episode that if, I said if there's one player in the system who I want to succeed more than anyone else, it's Drew Rahm, just because no one seems to be, very few people seem to be Drew Rahm fans. And really, the pitching as a whole in this organization, I know we get dumped on a lot for hyping up the pitchers in the system. I mean, fans of so many bad arms in the system, but what do you see? Drew Rahm is, is Rule 5 eligible this year, so he you know, could be added to the 40-man roster in December. What do you, Does he have a role in the major leagues, do you think? I, I think so. I, I, I saw him on opening day in Bowie. It was a short start because it was opening day. Um, 
I don't really remember a lot of it, and I never got down there to see see him since. I didn't talk to him, but but it, it's a challenge to be that kind of pitcher um, in in the big leagues. I think he throws a little bit harder than a Zach Loudon and Alexander Wells. Um, so I think they're, we're talking about a different like profile and a little bit more stuff and more variety. I mean, you talk about people in the organization about how many pitches he has. There's no set number. You know, it could be five one day, it could be seven because he could drop down his arm slot and you know have a couple more pitches for that. I just think it's very, very challenging to do that. Um, he knows that. You know, I did talk to him last year towards the end of the year, and he said he would watch, you know, Alex Wells and Zach Lauther pitch in the big leagues to say, okay, if this is the kind of stuff that I have, and I'm, you know, and, and Giancarlo Stan or Aaron Judge is in the box, like, this is how you need to attack them. This is how you need to do that. And I thought that was really interesting that he kind of understood that because it's, it's really hard to do that. We saw with those guys uh, over the course of the last two years that it's hard to pitch um, with that kind of profile in the big leagues. So the flip side of that is that you, until you prove that you can't, you get a chance to prove that you can't. And he went to AAA and he pitched well, and he's going to, you know, soon enough, if he keep pitching the way he is, get that opportunity. I just think it's challenging, and the, the track record of that is difficult, but as long as you do it, you know, you get a chance to keep trying to do it, and I think he's the best hit right now. All right, so season's over. Time to look ahead to 2023. We've got quotes from Michael Elias, like we have liftoff, it's on my shirt. Uh, you know, the sky's the limit. We're opening up the pocketbooks. We're right there with the AL East. How realistic is it? Like, what what do you envision the offseason being? Are we trading some of these top ten guys? Are they actually what kind of guys are they looking to sign or trade for? Are we looking Carlos Correa ten-year deal? Are we looking uh, a couple guys on, on shorter-term deals and maybe a, a trade for a starting pitcher? Um, I would say it's probably the latter. I think it's going to be a real fascinating mix to see how it plays out. Um, and I was kind of thinking about that as Michael Eyes was talking today um, at Camden Yards. There are a lot of different ways to do what they need to do, and there probably aren't wrong ways. There's probably a mix, but like you can't count on you know we have four infield prospects in AAA, so we don't need to sign an infield. You know, you can't count on that. You know, not everyone's going to come up the way Gunnar Henderson did, the way Natalie Rushman did once he got going. Um, I think they know that. I think that the presence of those players will be will be challenging to say, I'm going to commit a boatload of money in years to a player when we could have alternatives, you know, in player X, player Y, player Z. So I think you know, I think the solution to that is to trade them. But, <laughs> you know, I think that if you want to thread the needle, you, you take, you know, an infielder or two. Um, and, and make those pitching trades that way, and then you don't have that fallback if we have four infielders in, in Norfolk that we like. So we need to shore up that part as well. I think there's a way to do it. I would be very surprised if there's huge financial commitments to free agents, just given that you know everything that's happening with the organization uh, off the field. I think it's a challenging time for that still. Um, but I would be very surprised if nothing happens. Um, I think. I think they, they know that they need to do that. I think it would be frustrating, you know, given how quickly people turn from, like, this is a rebuild and this is going to take time to, like, why doesn't Adley Rushman catch seven days a week because we want to make the playoffs? I think the, 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 the speed at which that happened registered. Um, so I don't think it's going to be a very, like, work at the margins offseason. I think they're going to make some core moves, and but I think it's a balance. I think... There's going to be just as many prospects that are in the mix to contribute as there are guys who we can't even fathom right now, uh, whether it's a rotation, infield, stuff like that. Yeah, it felt like with Adley Rutschman not catching, it would be, why isn't Adley Rutschman catching today? Well, it's because the Orioles are off today. There, no one's catching today. Yeah. Um, but speaking of that, we you get the sense now that this is his team. 
this is the player that you have brought on to be the face of this franchise. There was a dramatic turnaround when he got to the major leagues this year. Do you think that there is a possibility of an extension sometime, let's say, the next 12 months? Without a lot of confidence, yes. I think that's something you that you want to explore. I feel like you know he's probably a month away from getting, uh, you know, from being like on the rookie of the year ballot and having that, you know, having that influence his career in a significant way. Um, that's going to change the equation for the Orioles and for him. Um, I think that if there is a player, if we're talking about like a cornerstone type guy, he might be the one to do it. Um, I think that the ship might have sailed with Gunnar Henderson um, this offseason when he signed with Scott Boris. And, you know, I think there's people in the organization who believe him doing that also helped him become a big leaguer at 21 and become the top prospect in baseball. So, so you know, fair play, fair play for everyone there. But I think that Adley Rutschman um, would listen. I think the Orioles would have to come with something legit. And are they going to be able to do that when we're talking about um, a potential sale and a potential, you know, all the stuff going on with, with, with ownership? I think it's kind of messy. I don't know what kind of money is available for that, but if you're going to spend that money on something, I think it would be a fantastic way to do it, to spend it on, you know, securing Adley Rush. All right, so um, just to kind of get your thoughts on this, Cedric Mullins did step back a little bit this year from what he did last year, but overall, still a good player. The Orioles have three years of team control left with him. What do you see from him going into next year? I'm fascinated to see kind of how he comes out of this. Um, I don't think there's anything about, you know, his offseason or his preparation coming off like a good season like he had that influenced what he did. I think that I think that it's a really tough place to be in, in a weird way to be, you know, almost unprecedentedly successful doing something that no one's done in a really long time, which is stopping the switch hit. Like, I would be fascinated to know what he thought he needed to work on this time last year versus what he knows that he needs to work on now. Um, you know, he, he stopped switch hitting as a big leader. Like, there is self-awareness there. There is, like, understanding of what he needs to get better at. Um, he showed that, and he became an all-star for it. So I think that he's probably going home right now with a really clear understanding of, like, this is how I was attacked. He knew that early in the season once he started getting attacked that way. I was like, okay, I need to fix X, Y, and Z because this is how I'm being pitched. So I think that he will be going home and is probably on a plane if right now if he's not if he's not flying out tomorrow morning to say, hey, you know, this is what I need to do. I know now. Um, that was challenging. I still played good center field. I still stole some bases. Um, it wasn't an unproductive year, but it wasn't the year that I'm capable of. So I, I think that there's probably better for him. But once you get into this range of, you know, arbitration eligible, um, once you start talking about those kind of things in this organization, at least until they show that it doesn't matter, it matters because there's not a lot of players who, you know, are arbitration eligible who, who end up wearing an Orioles uniform for very long. I've got one more question, and being a you know minor league podcast, so it's going to be a minor league focus here. You watched, I imagine, a lot more games this year. Got to talk to a lot more guys this year than in some of your past covering the major league squad for Baltimore Sun every day. But is there a guy who you watched or you talked with? You know, some of your sources and you think is getting overlooked. A guy that maybe should be highlighted a, a little bit more. This is kind of weird to say um, because he's a big leaguer and, like, he was a player of the year last year. But, like, there's been, like, a weird, like, Kyle Stowers erasure. Um, I'm probably guilty of that myself. Um, I think that his season, at, like, statistically, even though he's a year older, he had the experience, um, like, statistically a better season there than, like, Jordan Westbrook by OPS. I don't know about the expected stuff. I don't know about the stuff, you know, under the hood. But 
talking to people in the organization that I have, there's there's, there's a real recognition of like the difficulty of improving in the ways that he did this year. Um, it's not easy to be a power hitter and say I need to cut down on my strikeouts and in swing and miss and do that and not lose that power. Um, I think Kyle Stowers is also someone who has a lot of the mental traits and the physical skills they look, they look at. Um, and, I, and I'm sitting here saying this as someone who, you know, is in the midst of putting together like a baseball America top ten and like I don't know where he's going to go in it, so I don't know where he fits in that kind of like next tier. But I think that because he was in the big leagues, and I don't think he's actually rookie eligible, he's eligible for, for the Baseball America rankings, though. I think that he's someone who really, like, who just because, you know, he's not Adley Rutschman and not Gunnar Henderson and not, you know, the next wave, he's kind of been, like, smushed in the middle of them. And I think that I, I'm interested to see how the rest of the industry kind of views that as this offseason goes forward. My last one is who will be next year's players that. Are the Jemiah Jones, Terry Bamber, Kyle Stowers, call them up, call them up over and over again. May, June, 2023, who's the, who's the guys that are going to be, like, demanded to be called up to the major leagues? Oh, my God, all of them. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I hope that, so. I hope that you know, the Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Halls of the world are, are starting in the big leagues in short order. I hope that that happens in April just because that would be really fun to watch. Um, I assume that, you know, the level of adjustability and how Colton Kowser and Connor Norby have kind of improved. I assume that whatever amount of at-bats there are earmarked for them in AAA next year will be more than any, you know, any Orioles fan wants to see. <laughs> I, I also think that there's going to be eventually like that that interesting wave of pitchers that are kind of behind them. I think there's going to start to be those types too. I mean, the beauty of having like a lot of like, you know, guys with sweeping sliders and like hoppy fastballs is like those play out of the bullpen really really nicely so I think you're going to start seeing something we haven't seen in a long time which is like hey why don't we just get this guy up here like pitching wise you know usually for the last you know three years before this it was like who's who's alive like who's available today and who's alive like maybe they can get us through the seventh inning this year it was a little different you know good pitchers got sent down and called up but I think we're going to get to a point too where there's going to be like legitimate bullpen pieces or guys who can help the bullpen um, if there are any falters in, in that category who can do that and, and that'll be an interesting wrinkle to add to the uh, the discourse so John we always appreciate your insight thank you for coming on tonight now thanks for your heads up we know we should not buy Bitcoin off of your Instagram but we should subscribe to your newsletter so <laughs> let us know let our listeners know where you can get your newsletter and what the differences are between the uh free and pay for versions. Yeah, so it's called Maximizing Playoff Odds. It's on the Substack platform. Uh, I think my Twitter is still not hacked, but, but I usually tweet out all the articles at John Bioli. It's johnbioli.substack.com. We do one free article every week, uh, two or three paid ones. I think that it's still going to be really, really interesting as the offseason goes on. I have a couple like project-type things planned. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate your guys' support. I know that what you guys do is... Uh, is a grind. I, I, I'm fascinated to know like the inner workings of like who's watching the games when and like how, how it all works. It seems like it's a lot, um, and I appreciate you guys always supporting um, and, and plugging in situations like this. But you know, I think that I think that it's a really cool time to be doing the kind of work that you guys are doing and, and, and the kind I'm trying to do. So I appreciate all the support. And uh, yeah, do not buy Bitcoin from me. Don't take investment advice otherwise. But do not buy Bitcoin from that link on my Instagram. 
Well, John, thank you so much for coming on tonight, and we love your newsletter. So John Mioli, the author of Maximizing Playoff Odds, Baltimore Orioles newsletter, available now through Substack. And here, Bob and I will switch mics real quick. Uh, Nick, I just wanted to point out, because you mentioned that we uh, we uh, catch some heat for hyping up Orioles pitching prospects. I just want to take a quick second to remember the time that we caught too much heat for talking about the minor leagues. I mean, I can't believe that we started this podcast in, what, February, late January, early February, or whatever, of 2020. And so we started a minor league-focused podcast, and then the pandemic hit, and there was no minor league season for a whole year. So oh, the main subject of our podcast did not exist for the first year of existence. And now we're we're one of the top baseball podcasts in the United States of America, listened in 75 countries. And so I, I think it's amazing what we've done and uh, the people who follow us. So before we wrap up tonight, we do have a couple of shirts over here to give away. They are shirts that a listener named Chris dropped off. Uh, and the, you go on RouteOneApparel.com and enter promo code CHRIS8, you get a discount. But we do have a couple of XL shirts here, and Nick's going to hold it up. Does anybody wear XL? It's a great eight. It's got Ovechkin, Lamar, and Cal Ripken on that. Oh, that, that was an air ball. That was a complete air ball. There you go. There you go. Yeah, check out that website. All right, so Bob, any final thoughts here? Thanks, everybody, for coming out. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, Dan, again. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. We hope to have a live show sooner than two and a half years from now. Um, in the meantime, follow us on Twitter, at BSL on the Verge. We're going to be on the the air every week this offseason with the latest Orioles minor league coverage. And also be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for the latest Orioles, Ravens, and uh, yes, the Ravens need to get better in the fourth quarter. That's a separate topic for another day. College sports and more. Check out the message board and join in discussing with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Thank you to the staff here at Full Tilt. Please be sure to tip your servers well and do not break up the four packs in the fridge. For Bob Bailey, Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spence. You've been listening to on the road. Hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. So, children told me that you were here. Yes. I, I, that'll do it for this week's episode of on the verge be sure to check out our patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much much more